0: be hearing in a moment our text from Leviticus uh, chapter 10. I'm actually just going to read the uh, first seven verses of the chapter, uh, having realized uh, halfway through the week that I wouldn't be able to do the whole chapter. Um, The book of Leviticus opens, you'll remember, with God speaking through Moses to the congregation of Israel, telling them how it's going to be possible for them to draw near to him and worship He says in Leviticus 1, verses 1 and 2 Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When any one of you brings an offering to the Lord, you shall bring your offering of livestock from the herd or from the flock. The congregation is not to come empty handed, but with an offering. In fact, the Hebrew word here used for draw near, sometimes translated draw near or come near in our English Bibles, it is actually the same root for the Hebrew word for offering. So some translations will actually say offer an offering, offering. Uh, but, but the imagery there for the Hebrew mind is, is coming near to the Lord's presence with an offering uh, in your hands. Uh, and, and so in a very real sense, think of that that movement coming to the meeting tent with an offering to present to the Lord. That's the essence of Israel's worship. That's the essence of their worship. Uh, the Lord has provided an earthly sanctuary. We're going to see the, the term holy place here, and that's, that's just a sanctuary, is a holy place, a sacred place. And so the Lord is, has provided a, a holy place not holy in itself of course this isn't some kind of superstitious thinking that the the sand the ground under the tent of meeting is somehow magical or something no it's it's holy because god has designated it's ho- holy it's it's holy because he's put his name on it because his presence is there by his decree and so so he's provided this earthly holy place for for a a dramatic acting out, for a continual drama being played out every day before you as the congregation of Israel, of of what it means to draw near to him, uh, to be in the presence of the Lord, Yahweh. And so we saw the Lord speaking in the first seven chapters of Leviticus describing the sacrificial offerings that the congregation was to bring near and offer there sacrifices of purification, of dedication, of tribute, and of fellowship. And these offerings are the means whereby the congregation acts out in in a physical way, in a tangible way, their faith in him and, and and they experience then, as they do that, they experience a spiritual oneness with him. And, of course, that's, that's our prayer for what would happen here, isn't it? That as we gather together as a congregation, as we bring to the Lord the offerings, not just of our hands, but of our hearts and our minds, uh, that it, this would be an expression of our faith. We wouldn't just be putting on a show. To be an expression of our faith in him, and we would experience, in a spiritual sense, his presence with us. Now, of course, the spiritual truth displayed to human senses there in the worship of Israel, uh, that's expressed in very bloody terms, isn't it? Uh, because the, the drama being acted out there it is demonstrating that God is holy, holy, holy. And he must be approached with sacrifice. Okay, as someone has said, the way to the Lord is through a bloody knife and a blazing fire. And that's to demonstrate, to teach to the people and to us, we read about this long after the fact, to teach us that, that there's something wrong with us. That in and of ourselves, we cannot come into God's presence. He, he, he requires that atonement be made, our sin be covered up. That's the meaning of that word, atonement, that our sin be covered. That, that, that somehow, somehow his wrath against our sin uh, be propitiated, be be turned away from us, so that we could come to him. and And, and so... In the, in the worship there that we've read about here in the book of Leviticus, we see the Lord uh, portraying for his people, teaching his people, uh, that he is ultimately a God of love, who is providing for them a means into his presence that they couldn't come up with on their own. And of course, foreshadowed in that worship is that that means will involve death. That means will involve, somehow, their sin being atoned for with the lifeblood. Now, they, they know these rituals that they perform so that they'll be ritually pure. You know, if they wear the wrong clothing or, you know, they come in contact with something unclean, they, they know those don't really, don't really touch the sin in their hearts. But that ritual purification is pointing them to the fact that God is going to take care of that sin in their hearts, even though they don't have the, the luxury of, of uh, seeing it from our viewpoint and knowing that these sacrifices point forward to Jesus Christ. But that drama there that's acted out over and over again is communicating them Communicating truth to them, as Dorothy Sayers liked to say, the, the drama is the doctrine. The drama of Scripture is the doctrine, is the truth. If you can look for the drama in Scripture, and, and then and then ask yourself, okay, what what is God portraying to me here? That that's that can be helpful to you. Well. Chapters 8 and 9 resumed the biblical narrative after those seven chapters of of, uh, instruction as the congregation commenced the liturgy of the covenants that God had given them, the worship. And we saw that uh, in chapter 8, there is a seven-day period of ordination of uh, of Aaron and his sons that is emphasizing the uh, necessity of of holiness before the Lord. And so these priests are set apart. It's the essence of the word holy, it's to be set apart. And so they're set apart over a period of seven days for their ministry, which is going to be assisting the congregation in their worship of God, and their worship before the Lord. And then those seven days of ordination climaxed on the eighth day, as we saw in chapter nine, with the first worship service of the congregation very first time they gathered for worship at the meeting tent. They came to the meeting tent for worship. And at the conclusion of that service, the congregation was given a sign by the Lord. Leviticus 9, 22 to 24. Then Aaron lifted up his hands toward the people and blessed them. And he came down from offering the sin offering and the burnt offering and the peace offerings. And Moses and Aaron went into the tent of meeting. And when they came out... They blessed the people, and the glory of the Lord appeared to all the people. Fire came out from before the Lord and consumed the burnt offering and the pieces of fat on the altar. And when all the people saw it, they shouted and fell on their faces. In that display, both the benediction being given by Moses and Aaron coming out of the meeting tent. Remember, no one could go into it before, okay? once the the presence of the Lord was there. So both the benediction being spoken by those who had gone into the meeting tent and now came out, and that fire that consumed what was left of the sacrifice on the altar. Those are signs. Basically, God is saying, I accept your worship. That's an affirmation of their worship. God wasn't just doing something to show off there. He's communicating to them. Yes, I'm here. I'm receiving your worship. As sinful as you are, I am receiving your worship and I want to bless you. And so the benediction coming from Moses and Aaron is, is actually the blessing of God there. Well, I mean, that's where we would expect to hear the fairy tale ending, isn't it? <laughs> And they lived happily ever after, worshiping the Lord and enjoying his presence. I mean, what what more wonderful state can you imagine? That this ragtag bunch of former slaves, living in poverty and enslaved in Egypt with no... No sense of identity of their own, certainly no concept that they were a nation, that they were a people, much less that they were, that they were favored by God. They seemed instead under the curse of God. And, and now, what a transformation by the time we reached that worship service in chapter 9 of Leviticus. I, I mean, it must have been hard for some of the congregation to believe that they had come so far been delivered in such a mighty way, and now had a personal relationship with God. I mean, in terms of the biblical narrative, this is virtually a return to paradise, right? Because remember, in the Garden of Eden, Adam was charged to guard and serve the garden, and he failed in that, and so the blessing of being there turned into a curse of banishment. Now we've seen that sort of reverse. The same language is used, guarding and serving of the priests there at the meeting, to, and blessing has come out. So in a very real way, it's, it's sort of like that this is, as it were, a resolution to the conflict, the tension that has been in the Scripture since Genesis. And yet... And yet, with a heavy heart, we realize that that bright reality, well, it's not gonna become a reality. Might've been a hope, but it didn't turn out. And instead of blessing, we read of cursing. Instead of celebration and triumph, we read of tragedy and catastrophe. And that's our text, Leviticus chapter 10, verses 1 through 7. Now Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took his censer and put fire in it and laid incense on it and offered an unauthorized fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, This is what the Lord has said. Among those who are near to me, I will be sanctified. And before all the people, I will be glorified. And Aaron held his peace. And Moses called Mishael and the sons of Uziel, the uncle of Aaron, and said to them, Come near. Carry your brothers away from the front of the sanctuary and out of the camp. So they came near and carried them in their coats out of the camp, as Moses had said. Moses said to Aaron and to Eleazar and Ithamar, his sons, Do not let the hair of your heads hang loose. Do not tear your clothes, lest you die, and wrath come upon all the congregation. Let your brothers, the whole house of Israel, bewail the burning that the Lord has kindled. Do not go outside the entrance of the tent of meeting, lest you die, for the anointing oil of the Lord is upon you. And they did according to the word of Moses. In terms of the historical narrative, verse 1 comes as a shocking surprise, doesn't it? We, we simply are not expecting this. Uh, Nadab and Abihu, the older sons of, of Aaron, they'd been, they'd been ordained along with him and, and their brothers in that seven-day ritual. They had joined in that inaugural worship service that was so awesome and, and must have been so moving and, and wonderful. Uh, they had seen all that was commanded by the Lord, Done and preparing and leading up to and carrying out that worship, and and, and it seemed that everything was complete. Okay, everything had been faithfully done. We saw that they repeated in scripture, and yet suddenly, without any explanation of their motives or intentions at all, Nadab and Abihu take it upon themselves to invent a new ritual they, for whatever reason, decide they're going to come up with a new way to worship Yahweh. Now, it's not clear exactly what they do, or at least what's wrong with what they do. For the first time in Leviticus, you, you heard the mention of censers or fire pans. Now, now we read about those being made in Exodus. The, these are a legitimate part of, God's, uh, of the worship of God there in the tabernacle and later the... Uh, the temple, the, uh, these fire pans or censers would, would be filled with coals and then incense added to them, and, and that would be burned in the presence of the Lord. In fact, in the holy place, uh, right before the mercy seat. So, so the utensils seemed to be part of the worship. Primarily associated, of course, with the altar of incense that is inside the meeting tent, just in front of the veil, separating off the portion with the Ark of the Covenant and the mercy seat on top of it. Okay, So you have that Ark of Incense. Maybe you remember in the Christmas stories of Zechariah coming in to, to tend that altar. It's where Zechariah is tending the altar, the altar of incense that the angel appears to him, remember, and tells him that John the Baptist is going to be born. Uh, now, it, 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 was to be, it was to be carefully tended, okay? In Exodus 30, when the instructions are given to build the altar, specifically the Lord says, you shall not offer unauthorized incense on it. Or a burnt offering. It wasn't an altar of sacrifice. It was an altar of incense. It's most holy to the Lord. Now notice that passage in Exodus 30 uh, has in common with our text the use of that word unauthorized. Unauthorized fire. Unauthorized and actually incense in Exodus. And we see that in in our text. Not literally that. That word there means alien, foreign, or strange. Uh, a number of translations use the term strange here. D- don't offer strange incense. That That is incense that are, is foreign to what should be there. Uh, the, uh, the sin, then, of Nadab and Abihu, some say, well, it's, it's found in the use of that that word strange, and that's probably true. All the places where we see this incident related, we see that word used. In Numbers 3, when this is being recalled, it says, Nadab and Abihu died before the Lord when they offered unauthorized or strange fire before the Lord. Numbers 26, when it's uh, listing the members of uh, Aaron's family It mentions Nadab and Abihu died when they offered unauthorized or strange fire before the Lord. Now, what was supposed to happen at the altar of incense and when Aaron went into the holy place was that Aaron was supposed to take coals from the altar, the burnt offering altar, put them into the censer, and then take some special incense, incense made according to a specific recipe and not used for anything else, take that into the holy place and burn that incense in front of the Ark of the Covenant, in front of the mercy seat. And we see that uh, portrayed in Leviticus 16 in the, in the ceremony of the Day of Atonement. There in verse in chapter 16 of Leviticus... This incident is recalled again. They drew near before the Lord and died, it says. Now, what makes the fire strange? Remember, the passage in Exodus says strange incense. So some people think, well, the sin of Nadav and Abihu is they're using incense that is not that special recipe of incense that was supposed to be used in the temple or in the tabernacle. Others say, well, the strange is connected to the fire, so perhaps they did not take the coals from the altar of sacrifice. Maybe they took the coals from somewhere else. Maybe that's what made it unauthorized or strange fire. We don't know for sure because it doesn't clearly say. Now, some people see the repetition of the phrase before the Lord here. Literally, in Hebrew, that means before the face of the Lord, okay? And they see the repetition of that. You probably heard it in my reading of the other accounts. Nadav and Abihu died before the Lord. It says before the Lord in all those passages. And so, some people think, well, what's happening is they're taking it upon themselves to do what only their father, the high priest, was to do. It was their father, the high priest, who was the only one who was allowed to go into the holy place, and that only on one day of the year, the day of atonement. And so some people, seeing that expression before the Lord and the reference to the holy place in our text, they think Nadab and Abihu went into the holy place. ...to burn that incense where they weren't supposed to go. Now, it may even be that they acted wrongly in all three of those ways. That they didn't follow the right procedure... ...and they weren't supposed to be where they were before the Lord. But what the narrative seems to emphasize... If you can go back to our text, is the closing clause of the sentence describing what had happened. Look again at verse 1 and notice how it ends. Which he had not commanded them. Which he had not commanded them. So the narrative seems to be pointing us more toward that as the explanation rather than some of those other things, even though those other things might have been true. Now, that's, that phrase sounds really strange to us, speaking of strange, at this point in the narrative, because we've read exactly the opposite so many times before in Leviticus, haven't we? Even in the, even in the narrative of the ordination ceremonies themselves, right? Moses had warned... Aaron and his sons, to do everything exactly according to to God's command and attach the threat of death. Leviticus chapter 8, verse 35, At the entrance of the tent of meeting, you shall remain day and night for seven days, performing what the Lord has charged, in other words, doing everything that he told you to do, so that you do not deny, for so I have been commanded. And the very next verse, Leviticus 8, 36, tells us they did that. Aaron and his sons did all the things that the Lord commanded by Moses. Leviticus chapter 9, Moses introduces the worship service, saying, This is the thing that the Lord commanded you to do, that the glory of the Lord may appear to you. Verse 7. Moses speaks to Aaron again and, and tells him what to do and, and finishes with, as the Lord commanded. Verse 10, as the Lord commanded. Verse 16, Aaron presented the burnt offering and offered it according to the rule. Verse 21, the breast and the right thigh, Aaron waved for a wave offering before the Lord as Moses had commanded. And then we had that scene of blessing. But now, the very next sentence, we're told that two of these newly ordained priests do what God did not command. They disobeyed. They were correctly ordained. They were at the right place. They had the right equipment. But their worship deviated from that commanded by the Lord. Does it matter how you worship God? Does it matter how you worship God? Or does he just take whatever you'll throw his way? Genesis chapter 4. Cain and Abel bring their offering. You remember the, the story, the narrative. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering he had... No regard. He didn't accept his worship. And you remember Cain's reaction to that. He was angry. God said to him, if you do well, will you not be accepted? Whose fault is it? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you. Its desire is against you. But you must master it. Of course, Cain doesn't. Deuteronomy chapter 12. Lord speaking to the people before they enter the land of Canaan. Take care that you do not be ensnared to follow them. That is the customs of the people of the land. And that you do not inquire about their gods, saying, How did these nations serve their God's? that I also may do the same. Don't adopt foreign practices. You shall not worship the Lord your God in that way, for every abominable thing that the Lord hates, they have done for their gods, for they even burn their sons and their daughters in the fire to their gods. Everything that I command you, you must be careful to do, you shall not add to it or take from it. Worship me only the way I've told you to worship me. And parenthetically, the worship of the Canaanites, that shows you where ungodly worship leads. It leads to death. Our culture worships death. There's no other explanation for abortion. We sacrifice our sons and daughters for the sake of our lifestyles. It matters how you worship. Second Chronicles chapter 26, Uzziah. Remember him from our call to worship. Uzziah becomes king at 16. Uh, you 16-year-olds, how would you like to be king of a nation at 16? And he reigns 52 years. And we owed, there in 2 Chronicles 26, he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. According to all that his father, MSI, had done, his father had given him a pretty decent example, and he followed his father's example. He set himself to seek God in the days of Zechariah, who instructed him in the fear of God. He had the personal tutoring of, of a prophet. As long as he sought the Lord, God made him prosper, and as soon as we read, as long as he did it, we know There must have been a fall coming, and sure enough, later in the chapter, when he grew strong, he grew proud to his destruction. For he was unfaithful to the Lord his God and entered the temple of the Lord to burn incense on the altar of incense. What's a king doing that for? Only the priests are allowed. But the kings of the nations around him, Function as priests all the time. He wants to be like them. He wants to show us power. He wants to be in charge of the worship as well as everything else. Azariah, the priest, went in after him and 80 priests of the Lord who were men of valor. Confrontation. They withstood King Uzziah and said to him, it is not for you, Uzziah, to burn incense to the Lord, but for the priests, the sons of Aaron who are consecrated to burn incense. And Uzziah got mad. Then was angry. Now he had a censer in his hand to burn incense. And when he became angry with the priest, leprosy broke out on his forehead in the presence of the priest in the house of the Lord by the altar of incense. And they rushed him out quickly. And he himself hurried to go out because the Lord had struck him. And he was a leper until the day he died exiled from his own throne room, living outside Jerusalem. Does God care about how he's worshipped? Isaiah chapter 1, further on than our call to worship. The Lord says this to the people, "'What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices?' I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats when you come to appear before me. Who is required of you this trampling of my courts? Now, he, he commanded these sacrifices. What, what's going on here? Well, you, you get the hint in the next lines. Bring no more vain offerings. They're vain. Your new moons, your appointed feasts, my soul hates, all those worship services you're having. I hate them. They're a burden to me. I'm weary of burying them. When you spread out your hands, that's a gesture of prayer, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Why? Your hands are full of blood. Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice, correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless. Plead the widow's cause. It's not even enough to make all the right rituals, to do all the right external things. If it's vain and your heart is far from God. Well, this isn't just an Old Testament concept. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 23, Woe to you. And remember what that means is a curse on you. A curse on you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law justice and mercy and faithfulness. You're really good at following the rituals. You tithe everything. You even tithe the little herb plants. You, 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 you go to all the trouble of figuring out what a tenth of your parsley is. So you can give it. But it's in vain. Because you've neglected justice and mercy and faithfulness. Does Jesus, does Jesus care about how he's worshipped? Acts chapter 4. Read the account of Ananias and Sapphira. A lot of people, the early Christians, are selling extra land that they had and coming, giving the money to the disciples, apostles. It's being used to minister to those who are poor, especially widows. Ananias and Sapphira see this going on. Think, oh, we, we want a piece of that action. You know, we want to, we want to look good in front of everybody for our offering, and so they sell some land. But they they don't want to give all of it. I mean, it's not like they're required to give all of it. So they bring a portion of it, but they lie and say it's the total amount. You remember the penalty for that offering? They were struck dead. Does God care about how he's worshiped? Revelation chapter 2, to the angel or messenger of the church in Ephesus write, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. This is a word directly from your God, directly from your Lord, Jesus. Here's the message for you as a church. You've done great in many ways, he says. I know your works, your toil, your patient endurance. You ferreted out wrong teaching. That's good. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. You don't love me like you did. If you don't repent, Jesus says... I will remove your lampstand from its place. Your church will cease to exist. And it did. Does God care about how he's worshipped? Notice that in all of these examples, and we could find others in scripture, not to mention history, of course, but notice the problem of wrong worship, Always has its origin in the heart. The heart. The inner state of being. Cain's wrong heart was immediately revealed in his anger and, and his lashing out at his brother's his heart was in the wrong place. That, that's the real problem with the sacrifice. The disrespect of the Israelites was evident in their desire to model their worship after the worship of idols. We want our worship to look like the worship of the world. Uzziah's sin in wanting to take upon himself the role of a high priest, we were told, was rooted in his pride. The Lord's rejection of the worship of Israel in Isaiah's day was because of their attitudes of injustice and their abuse of those who are weaker than them. Jesus' condemnation of the Pharisees was because he knew that their failure to pursue justice and to pursue mercy was an indication that they did not truly love God because God is a God of justice and mercy. And Ananias and Sapphira were killed before the Lord like Nadab and Abihu because the Holy Spirit saw their lying hearts. And Jesus' warning to the church in Ephesus was not that they were doing anything wrong in their worship, but that their hearts were growing cold to him. It's the heart of that counts. Isn't that what Jesus told that woman at the well in Samaria? This this scorned, probably, woman received teaching on worship from the Lord himself, and what did he say? The hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. It's the heart that matters in worship. Nadab and Abihu disobeyed the command of the Lord because their hearts were far from him. And look at verse 2. Isn't there an irony here? Exactly the same language is used in verse 2 as is used at the end of chapter 9 to describe the fire that consumed the sacrifice. The end of the worship service, fire came out and consumed the sacrifice on the altar. After Nadab and Abihu have done what they did, fire came out from before the Lord and consumed them. God cares about how he's worshipped. Deuteronomy 4, take care lest you forget the covenant of the Lord your God which he has made with you. For the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. He loves you with a jealous love. Deuteronomy 9, know therefore today that he who goes over before you, the one who's going to drive out all these enemies before you, is a consuming fire. It's the Lord your God. Isaiah 33, he pictures sinners in Zion, the godless, saying, who among us can dwell with the consuming fire? Who among us can dwell with everlasting burning? She's in the same expression from our text. He who walks righteously and speaks uprightly, Isaiah says, who despises the gain of oppressions, who shakes his hands, lest they owe the bribe. He, he, he shakes his hands rather than accept the bribe. He doesn't want it sticking to his hand who stops his ears from hearing of bloodshed and shuts his eyes from looking on evil, he would dwell on the heights. Again, this isn't just an Old Testament concept. Hebrews chapter 12. The writer of Hebrews' picture reminds the believers of this, the worship that we've seen in Leviticus and how awesome it was to actually see the, the glory cloud and to see the fire of the Lord. And he says... You, you Christians, have come to something far better. That was a temporary thing. That was a temporary kingdom. But you've come, he says, to a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. 2 Thessalonians, Paul pictures the Lord Jesus being revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. God cares about how he's worshipped. Verse 3 of our text tells us that God's holiness and his glory are in Viable. They cannot be abrogated. Look again at at what Moses says there. This is the word that the Lord has said. Among those who are near to me, I will be sanctified. Among those who draw near, he's using that same verb. If you draw near to me, I will be holy. Holy. I will be sanctified. It may be through the fire coming out and consuming your sacrifice, vindicating, approving your worship. Or I may show my holiness in a fire that comes out to destroy you because your heart is far from me. And then in the second line of the couplet there, Before all the people, that is the congregation, I will be glorified. God's holiness means that he is to be glorified. And he will be glorified in the salvation of sinners, and he will be glorified in the just condemnation of sinners. Aaron gets the point, doesn't he? Aaron Keeps his silence. He doesn't say a word. He's submitting to the Lord's will here. We could look at that. At that imagery. But uh, but I want to skip over that. Because I want to notice, you to notice in verse 4. Another piece of irony here in this narrative. As Moses calls. The cousins of these two dead men. To draw near. To draw near. To take their bodies. Far away. They had thought. They were coming near to God. They had thought they were proving their holiness. Their goodness. And exactly the opposite. Is the case. And Moses said to Aaron. Says to Aaron. And. And and his two remaining sons, don't you mourn. Do not grieve. We're at a crisis point. We're at a crisis point. Just when we thought the worship of Israel had been established and blessed, suddenly it is in jeopardy because the priests, the very ones who are to lead the worship, have sinned and violated God's commands. Moses says, don't you grieve. Why? Because the Lord was right. If you grieve, if you mourn, you're acting like the Lord was wrong. In effect, he's saying to them, you follow the example of Lord of, of Job. The Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. The holiness of God is supreme. That he be glorified is supreme. And how does our passage end? They did according to the word of Moses. It's also used of the cousins. They got the message. We started out our text with saying they didn't do what the Lord commanded. At least at the end, we get to where they say they did as the Lord commanded. They learned the lesson. But what's the lesson for you? You're not there. You're not an Israelite. your problem is not knowing the right rituals for Israel's worship. Your problem is that you're a sinner. And if Nadab and Abihu perish simply because they fail to observe some rules of ritual, what will be the response of a holy God To sinners that would dare to come into his presence. How can, in fact, a God who is holy, holy, holy draw sinners to himself? It's like inviting them to their own destruction. And it has to be, how can God remain holy and righteous if he allows sin to go unpunished? Consider all the sins of the human race, all the ways that they have offended God, their creator, and brought untold suffering into this world. Is God supposed to ignore that? For God to merely overlook even one human sin, for him to excuse just one sinner, would be to cease to be, he'd have to cease being God. You'd have to cease being holy. The true God can no more abide sin than he can cease being who he is. We sinners can excuse our sin or the sins of others. A holy God cannot do that. It's impossible. And yet, the Lord declares the prophet Isaiah to go back to him again in chapter 45. There is no other God besides me, a righteous God and a savior. There is none besides me. Do you hear that? A righteous God and a savior. How can it be that Isaiah is saying, God's going to be righteous. He's not going to compromise his holiness and his glory one iota. But he's going to save you. How can that be? Well, the only answer, of course, is found in the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's who G- Isaiah is pointing to in his prophecy, isn't it? The God who is the only God, purposed in his love to be both righteous And a savior, by taking upon himself human form, he satisfied the law's demands for perfect righteousness in himself. And he gave himself as that perfect sacrifice to bear the wrath of God against human sin. You can't come into the presence of God in your sin But in Jesus Christ, God has taken upon himself your sin and declared you righteous. So he is a righteous God receiving those who are made righteous in Christ. There's the gospel. Romans 3, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So that he is righteous and declares righteous. That's what that's saying. The one who is in Christ Jesus. It matters how You worship God. But God has made a way for you to come into his presence, not not just in a worship service, but to come into his presence for eternity and no rejoicing and glory because he made a way for you. That's good news. That's good news. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, in a world like ours, we surely need good news. And we need to be reminded of the good news as believers. We, we, we are forgetful people, Lord, and we uh, so easily uh, fall back into our old ways. Enable us, Lord, to, to grasp again the glorious message of good news in Jesus Christ, our Lord, that that he has made a way for us, that he has declared righteous those who place their faith in him. What a wonderful thing, Lord. May, may, may this truth inform even the way we live this week. May we live as a people who belong to you and who are seeking your glory in all things. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.